Okay, so let's ask the question. Here's the question. Was Yeshua a Sephardi? Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, he definitely was not Sephardic. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, he did go to Egypt once, so who knows what happened over there. Um, uh, but on the other hand, um, are, are Sephardim holding uh, more closely to uh, a halakhic position or to a tradition that is more similar to Yeshua? And I would have to argue yes. Okay. I mean, I, I have a little confession to make. You know, okay. whenever I would go to, I prayed in the Sephardic synagogues for a number of years, and whenever I go there, I'd be like, this is kind of probably how Yeshua prayed, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and shalom aleichem to everybody. I just got really Ashkenazi. <laughs> yeah, I did. So uh, welcome everybody. This is the Am Yisrael podcast, and uh, introduce myself. My name is Israel, and I'll go ahead and uh, have my colleagues introduce themselves. And we also have a special guest. My name is Shalom, <laughs> and I'm Ami. All right, and we have a special guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Mati. All right, Mati, Mati Yahu. Nice, nice to have you with us. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about Ashkenazim and Sephardim, and we're going to be talking about the differences, the similarities, what makes our our shared traditions, uh, what 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 we share in our traditions, what makes our traditions different, and everything in between. So when we think about Ashkenazim and Sephardim, we go back very uh, very much to centuries ago. And it's very interesting to look at the development of halakha, to look at the development of Jewish law. Many, many uh, centuries ago, people that are sharing from everybody. So people are quoting Rashi. Uh, that's the Ashkenazi pronunciation for him, by the way. Uh, they're quoting Rashi, and who is uh, uh, obviously an Ashkenazi from France. And they're quoting uh, Tosfot, who are some of his grandsons and later students who are also from France and Germany. And we're also quoting the Rambam, or we're quoting other, the Me'iri and other Sephardic commentaries, people from different uh, different lands in terms of whether they're from Spain or whether they're from somewhere else in the Middle East. And everybody quotes everybody. And uh, even modern day post scheme, even modern day halachic decisors, they quote everybody as well. So it could be somebody who's coming from an Ashkenazi perspective or somebody who's coming from a, a Sephardic perspective and they're quoting Ashkenazim, etc. And so we see in the development of Jewish law and kind of the development of the framework of Judaism itself, we have we don't really have a lot of differences between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And that really only happens when you get more down into the culture aspect. In modern, in modern Judaism, we really do have a divide. And if you go to your average synagogue, on a Shabbat morning, we, you know, it's really segregated. And so the question is, you know, is that a good thing? Uh, we can, on the one hand, say that, you know, people are free to go ahead and follow their traditions. And hey, there's 12 tribes, there's 12 tribes in Israel. And so each one has its own kind of flavor and its own tradition, its own culture. But uh, is that going ahead and furthering the fracturing of the Jewish world? That's really kind of the other question we can ask. So I want to go ahead and start off with the basis of Jewish law. And uh, the basis of Jewish law is really uh, based around three different personalities. And I want to go ahead and ask our guest, maybe if you can start us off with uh, talking a little bit about the history of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, and uh, the three kind of three legs, you will, 
uh, if you will, that, that it's based on? Sure. So originally, you know, the riff was the first person to say that uh, the Gemara is way too, uh, way too intricate for everybody, for the average person to, to read and to comprehend. So he cut it down and uh, basically gave the bullet points of the, of the Gemara. And who, who's the riff, by the way? Oh, the riff is uh, Rabbi Tzak Alfasi from, uh, from Morocco. Morocco. And uh, he was a commentator in the, in the 900s, I think, very early on. So he basically made uh, a summary of the Gemara to make it available to everybody. And people, obviously, uh, in general, didn't like, uh, didn't like the fact that he was, that he was choosing sides and uh, making, it, making it smaller, simpler. So, uh, Almost giving a summary of the, of the Gemara. The Gemara, by the way, is the Talmud. Right, and bring in the bring in the only the, the opinions that he thought were uh, authoritative or that were the final halakhic uh, decision. And but he's not all the only Sephardic uh, leg that the Shochan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, stands on. Who who are some other personalities? Right. So then later on, uh, the Rambam tried to do the same thing. And, and who's the Rambam? I th- I'm the sure Ram- most of our listeners are familiar. But what what's that's that's kind of a nickname or an acronym for his name? What's his uh, name? Rabbi Moshe Ben Maimon. Okay, and where was he from? He was also from Spain, from southern Spain. Okay. And so he wrote the Mishnah Torah, which he which is called the repetition of the Torah, and basically was uh, was a code of Jewish law. It was it was more in depth than the Rif because the Rif just cut out the pieces of the Gemara and uh, and pasted them all together. Whereas the Rambam gave um, halakhic uh, set things out in a as law, as this is what you do in these situations, and then sometimes he gave a basis for that. Um, he didn't quote his sources, which was uh, very controversial. Yeah, from what I understand, it was very controversial. It was, his books were even even burned and, and banned in certain communities. Is that correct? That is correct, in France in particular. Okay. But that was, uh, that was a good starting point that, uh, and basically all codes of Jewish law that came after that are uh, more or less uh, have that same structure. It was the, but it was the uh, tour who established the four, um, you know, the four sets of uh, Jewish law that we have today. And and that's that the tour is a nickname for him. What, what uh, it comes from his uh, most influential work, the Arbaturim, the the four rows, talking about the uh, the Choshen Mishpat, the chestplate of the high priest. Uh, can you tell what, what what was his name and where is he from? So he was from. Uh, I'm not sure where he was from. He was from Germany. His father was from Germany. I okay. think he actually he actually lived in Spain. I think too because his father fled there during the uh, Crusades in Toledo, maybe. And and his father was the Roche, correct? And his father was the Roche. Yeah. And and who's the Roche? Uh, Putting you on the spot I, here. Right. So the the Roche is Rabbeinu Asher, and uh, he was a, was an Ashkenazi, but he also, from what I understand. And uh, we'll have to have uh, you know another guest on here who's uh, very much goes deep into Jewish history. But um, from what I understand, he was Ashkenazi, but also was the main rabbi of rabbinic authority in a lot of Sephardic communities. Okay, so we have this variety, this kind of three-legged stool, if you will, that the Shulchan Aruch uh, stands on. Now, the Shulchan Aruch, what, what is that? And if you can give us a little background. The Shulchan Aruch was written by Rabbi uh, Yosef Karel in the 1500s. <laughs> Uh, yeah, 1400s, 1500s. And um, so basically he, he again, saw that um, there was a confusion about how you're supposed to do things. And so he said, 
Um, let me make it simple for everybody. So basically taking the Rambam's idea uh, with the tour's structure. And so he compiled what he said, the, the set table from the verse in, in the Torah that says that uh, you should, you know, that we should lay out. It's actually a Rashi's commentary on the, on the Torah saying that. Uh, oh, that's funny. So he, he got the name from a commentary of, of Ashkenazi. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> saying that uh, the laws should be set before the people like a set table. Um, so they should be clearly laid out, easy for us to easy for us to understand and to and to keep and to follow. Um, so he basically looked at the riff and the rosh, and then where they agreed, he wrote that as a halacha, and where they disagreed, he brought in the rambam as a tiebreaker, and so basically just went through and wrote out all the um, all the halachot as laid out by as laid out by the tour um, structurally, and writing down the halakhic conclusions the. You know the halacha uh, So, so basically, what I understand also is there were other people um, at that time, uh, other com- other Sephardic communities in like the Middle East or in other places that also, you know, they had their own traditions and their own rabbis, their own, their own uh, chachamim, rabbanim. And uh, so, I understand it was a little controversial even at that time. I don't know if you know anything about this. I don't know much about that, but it's always controversial when you when a rabbi puts out his uh, halakhic rulings and everybody else gets to jump on him and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> right. Two Jews, three opinions, right? Yep. That uh, it's also in the halakhic world as well. Yeah, and, you know, the, the interesting development of that, and I'll speak to this uh, as an Ashkenazi person myself uh, and a student of halacha, where you have at the same time uh, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, um, and he is writing... He's living in um, uh, Krakow. Yeah, he's living in Krakow, Poland. He is also writing a code of Jewish law, the Darke Noam. And so he sees the, the Shulchan Aruch written by somebody who's uh, his senior. He's a, he's a much older senior rabbi and decides that he's going to defer to him. Uh, so as he starts studying, though, and looking, he says, well, wait a second, you know, our... Our uh, our rabbis have something to say about these things too, and so yeah, he, he instead of writing his own book and having a very com- uh, a competing book, which is you know basically what we see all throughout the centuries in Judaism, he had an ingenious idea. He's like, well, let me make some glosses. Let me go ahead and write some uh, some commentaries, and where our rabbis differ with uh, a particular halacha, a particular uh, Jewish law, we're going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to kind of put the opinions in as an addition for Ashkenazim. It's very interesting to see that development in the halacha instead of just saying, well, I'm going to write my own book, you know, taking your ball and going home, so to speak. He's He said, well, okay, I, you know, I like what the Shulchan Aruch has to say, uh, what Rabbi Yosef Karo has to say, and I'm going to defer to him, uh, except in very minor places where the Ashkenazi opinion is different. Uh, one very famous idea actually is very interesting because sometimes he even... He mentions the Ashkenazi opinion, but he defers to uh, the Sephardic opinion or Rabbi Yosef, Kar- Rabbi Yosef Karl's opinion. Uh, be- waiting between eating meat and milk is a very interesting idea. So we all know that it's standard that uh, most people wait six hours between if they eat uh, eat meat and then and then eat, and then uh, eat something that's dairy or drink milk. And so he says, well, in our lands, we wait one hour. Um, however, Rabbi Yosef Carl said to wait six hours. So, okay, I'm going to defer to him. So it's kind of, you have a, a little bit of a give and take there. But uh, for for Sephardim, uh, from what I understand, they don't really, I mean, in study, maybe they might con- consult uh, 
consult the Ramah, who's known as the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, that's his kind of an acronym for his name or his nickname. But from what I understand, when they say, oh, we follow the Shulchan Aruch, they, they mean it's something maybe a little bit different than Ashkenazi means. Can, can you speak to that for a second? All right. So there's a general rule with uh, with halacha in, in that uh, when the, so sometimes the Mechaber, Rabbi Yosef Karo, he will bring two opinions or he'll bring multiple opinions. And the opinion that he brings without um, specifying who it is, uh, you know, Yesh Omrim, um, then the halacha is like the, like the Yesh Omrim, the one that's brought without, without qualifications. Um, but also sometimes the Ramah, when he brings commentary, it's not always to argue or to, to, dif- to differ with what the Mechaber is saying. It's sometimes to elucidate or to expand on or to explain. And so um, studying the Ramah helps Sefaradim as well understand understand what uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo was, was thinking and exactly what his uh, halakha conclusion is. So um, I know this is you know a topic we can go really deep into, so I'll just ask a, a couple more clarifying questions and then we'll kind of move on. But from what I understand in the, in the Sephardic community, uh, there's also a little bit of a variety as a lot of people follow the Benish Chai. And uh, so they, there's sometimes when there might be a little bit of a conflict between the two. And uh, so different Sephardic communities will choose one or the other from what I understand. And then uh, also, I think that there's also maybe an appearance of, of, of this, but uh, there's also sometimes when maybe the Kabbalistic or the mystic tradition in Judaism is a little bit at odds with the Shulchan Aruch. So uh, that might be a perception. I don't know, maybe you can correct us on that, but can you speak to both of those issues? Yeah, I think that's both accurate. And it's really the same thing. The Benish Chai, where he differs from the Mechaber. And, and who is the Benish Chai? The Sorry. Benish Chai is Rabbi Yosef Chaim from Baghdad uh, in, in the 1800s. He was a Kabbalist, and he brought uh, many of his, uh, what he brought in the Benish Chai in his, uh, his halakhic discourses, um, oftentimes was, were Kabbalistic, according to the tradition of the Arizal. And so where he and differs, who is the Arizal by the way? And the Arizal is uh, is uh, I know I'm just uh, you know a lot of times we throw throw away throw around their nicknames, but then we're like, oh wait, who is this guy and where is he from? And we, yeah, it's kind of difficult sometimes to to remember their historical uh, backgrounds. Right. The the Arizal is the he's the basis of Kabbalah that we have today. Yitzchak Luria. Oh, it's okay. Thank you very much, Sheldon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of sometimes just known by his nickname. Haram. It's kind of kind of like The Rock, you know. <laughs> it's like everybody knows The Rock, but then might not know. Oh yeah, his name is Dwayne Johnson, you know. And, okay, yeah, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria. Based on his teachings, um, he would bring halakha conclusions that are at, at odds with the Shulchan Aruch, and many communities defer to him. He was the he was the halakhic authority amongst the Sephardim in his day. Um, and then, obviously, Rabbi um, the Rishon Etzion, okay. Rabbi Yosef, he differed sharply with the with the Benish Chai, uh, not be, uh, because of uh, he thought that the Kabbalistic uh, conclusions were were too difficult or above and beyond what was uh, what was the minimum for everybody to to keep. So he uh, where he differs from the Benish Chai is usually over those issues where he. <laughs> Rav, Rav uh, Ovedi Yosef is straight Shulchan Aruch, whereas Ben Ishchai is, uh, is supplementing with uh, the Arizal. Yeah, and from what I understand, in the modern Sephardic community, uh, when he came on the scene, he had uh, a little bit of a divergence in, you know, in different communities and things like that, and he really kind of put out the, the, uh, the call to say, okay, let's rally around the Shulchan Aruch and let's make this uh, the standardized 
halacha in all of our communities. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. The Katha Chaim also is an uh, important uh, Sephardi work. Yeah, the Chida, the Chaim Yosef uh, David Azulai, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so he was uh, he was also a Kabbalist rabbi. He also the the Chida. Um, I can't remember his name. I only know his acronyms. But he was also a very significant uh, posek and uh, leader in the Sephardic uh, world. Um, who brings uh, again? He brings the Shulchan Aruch. He brings the commentary to the Shulchan Aruch to Orachaim, um, and has uh, lots of. He brings the the Shulchan Aruch, the 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 Kabbalah, and then also his own, um, you know, his own conclusions. Very nice. So, you know, we have a completely different picture when we get to the Ashkenazic community. Uh, we have a lot of different. So it's kind of almost, you know, you have the Shulchan Aruch and you have maybe the Ben Ishchai. And of course, there are commentaries on on both of those halachic works. You know, it's like kind of the joke. It's like, I'm going to write a book and you only need this one book. The Rambam said, you know, you need the Chumash or the Tanakh rather and, and, my, and my book. And that's all you need. And then, of course, there was an explosion of commentaries, <laughs> you know. So uh, that doesn't really work. There's no end to making to the writing of books as... Uh, as King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, you know, we're delving deep a little bit into Jewish law because it's really the framework for Judaism. We'll get to the how this touches in terms of culture next. But, you know, really what happens is you have an explosion of commentaries. So you have two very important commentaries that are on the page, if you will, for people that are maybe rabbinic students. So you have the Shach, uh, which is uh, the Sifte Chaim, or Sifsei Chaim, I guess, as we're getting into the Ashkenazic territory. And and then you have the Taz, the Turi Zohar, uh, Turi Zahav, sorry. So both of these people are major commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, on the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah. And then you have further commentaries on those, you know, you have the Piskei Tshuva, and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so really what you try and do in the Ashkenazic world is you have just a, you know, a voluminous amount of commentaries. And sometimes it's a little bit different, difficult to wade through all the commentaries and then find out, okay, what's the final ruling? But you really don't have kind of the unifying aspect that you do in the Sephardic world. Uh, moving on, actually, just thinking, thinking about the, the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi world, uh, it's really interesting because, you know, when you get to Israel, versus America, there's a, there's a big difference culturally. America's primarily, uh, you know, primarily based on the, based on Ashkenazi world. And that comes from a little bit of the historic aspect of yeshivot. Uh, a lot of the yeshivot, the, the idea of a yeshiva is really a, a Ashkenazi invention from the Lithu- Lithuanian world. And so then that trickles down to you know, when the first Ashkenazim were coming, you know, in, in the 40s and 50s uh, to America, you know, really kind of established the culture. And so, I don't know, From we have two gentlemen that are Sephardim here in the booth. And, you know, I'd like to hear maybe kind of how that touches in the Ashkenazi world and how kind of like you get the phenomenon of uh, uh, Sephardic, Sephardic uh, students, Sephardic, Sephardic rabbinical students. And, you know, they have the black hat and the black coat and everything like that. But I'd like to hear from you gentlemen kind of. That, the experience of, you know, being Sephardim in the Ash- Ashkenazic world almost. Well, I can just say for myself that um, uh, in in Israel, it's a completely different experience, except you still, you do have that. You have the situation where um, many Sephardim who are sending their kids to uh, Ashkenazi Hasidic centers of, of learning and yeshivas, you know, you've got Sephardic kids, you know, wearing black vests and, um 
hanging their payout down in front of their ears and they've got names like Shmulek. So that, that's, a, that's a reality. But again, in, in Israel, you have far higher numbers of Sephardim and there's uh, you know, a Sephardi culture sort of like smoothly integrated into daily life. Things look very Sephardic may not make sense to the people on the outside, but there's just a Sephardic, a Sephardim are very traditional. You do what your, uh, what your dad did. You did what your teacher did. You, you're not getting this out of a book. You're, you're deriving your halachas really from, from what you see your rabbeim doing. Also, you know, of course we have Sephardim in the United States, um, Sephardic communities in Seattle, um, Sephardic communities in Los Angeles, I think uh, some of the first synagogues in the United States were Sephardic, uh, including maybe the first was in Rhode Island. The impact that the Sephardic world has had on Jewish culture is it's, it's immeasurable. But um, but what we have in the United States today is mostly Ashkenazi. And um, I don't want to segue too quickly off of this topic, but um, um, because it's mostly Ashkenazi and the reform movement is an Ashkenazi problem, not a Sephardic one. We don't we don't have such things in the Sephardic world, really. And also, the Messianic movement is a reform problem. Oh, interesting. So, um, so be, because of that, the Messianic movement in um, wherever you are, but especially in the United States, is almost entirely Ashkenazi in its expression and in the the texts that are being drawn from. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned the the reform, and so it's very interesting because a lot of times the Ashkenazim that were they're migrating to the United States, the the Trefa Medina, as they say it in Yiddish, you know the uh, the un, the non kosher country, uh, they they were they were coming kind of to escape Judaism, and so they took you know kind of liberal ideas and liberal uh, forms of Judaism, such as the reform movement. And they that became kind of the, the main driving force. I mean, if you go pretty much almost anywhere where there's even a, a tiny Jewish community, it's going to be a reformed synagogue. Reform or you have a you have a Messianic synagogue, which we'll get to in a moment. But uh, yeah, so it's really interesting because that ends up making the basis for a lot of the leadership in the Messianic movement. They grew up reform or they were educated kind of in a reform style or so basically, a lot of the a lot of the synagogues we have in the movement in the messianic movement are really kind of based after after the reform based after the reform movement. You mentioned that there's really not a reform presence in the Sephardic world. So what did you mean by that? Well, uh, the reform movement began in Germany, so literally in in uh, the the heart of the Ashkenazi territory, and really didn't affect other parts of the Jewish world in the same way. People in oh, Baghdad um, weren't experiencing, you know, a, a desire to take their kippah off um, and, and walk around with it in their pocket and then put it on before they made a, a bracha. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that there are people that did that. You know, you have secular, secular or irreligious or, you know, just kind of mildly religious people in any situation. It, it just takes a lot longer with the turban. But um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, but so so the the in because the conservative movement was birthed out of the reform movement, the Ashkenazi scenario of having reform, conservative, and orthodox is something that's particular to Ashkenazim. And in the Sephardic world, everyone just goes to the same Beit Knesset. You might have somebody who you know shows up to the synagogue wearing you know jeans and a t-shirt. And he has a very Haredi 
rabbi who's uh, wearing a long black coat and a, and a black hat. Um, that's another thing. Uh, Sephardim tend to adopt the general dress um, of an area. Oh, interesting. So, okay. um, and, and what that does is now uh, Sephardic rabbis are dressing in a Haredi style that's very European, black hats, black coats. Uh, people at large are wearing, you know, regular street clothes. So we don't have that kind of uh, particular uniform like like uh, different Hasidic dynasties might. Yeah, like you might go to like a totally orthodox synagogue, but you have people that, like you said, is coming in jeans and T-shirts and kind of a more relaxed dress. They're not, you know, in, in suits and white shirts and, and things like that. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, you're going to have the full gamut. Everyone's going to the same Beit Knesset because there's only one to go to. There's no, there's no reform Sephardic synagogue. I think there, somebody tried to make one uh, recently, and maybe it exists or something, but that's not really a thing. That's not, uh, that's not historical at all. So I know in Israel you have the aspect of being Masorti. You know, what is that, and, and how does that present itself in the Sephardic world? Um, there might be, um, you know, general Israelis who happen to be Sephardic um, who are dropping into a Masorti congregation but in reality that's um, largely a, an imitation or a, a recreating of, of the conservative or maybe modern orthodox uh, movement in in Israel kind of a, an egalitarian uh, expression uh, you know where halakha is is more of a very strong sh- suggestion or maybe we're, we're using all the lenient sources that we can to derive uh, our halakhic rulings okay I see so yeah, even if somebody is not very strict in their religious observance, they're still traditional and they're still, uh, if they're going to go to synagogue or if they're going to go, you know, if they're going to go to synagogue on holidays, they're going to go to an, uh, what we would say like an American Orthodox synagogue. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there just isn't that concept. There's just uh, the Beit Knesset. And so every, everyone's going there. I mean, Orthodoxy in reality is like we, we've spoken about before. It's a, it's a Christian idea that's been superimposed over the Jewish world. Really in, in, in Judaism, we really uh, ought to just have Jews. Mati, I want to talk to you a little bit also and hear from you to see you know, what was your experience. I know you've been in uh, synagogues, I think, where there's kind of a mix. Uh, Ashkenazi synagogues where there are Sephardic, uh, Sephardic attendees and things like that. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? I don't think there's really anything in particular that's... Uh, well, I, uh, the nice thing is that there's a mishmash because <clears throat> everybody comes from all walks of life. <clears throat> you have... Um, like well, you'll have a synagogue, you'll have a Shabbat service, and uh, people will come in. They'll drive, but uh, you'll have other people that uh, that are Orthodox. You'll have people that are Orthodox that uh, have uh, regular regular clothes on. Uh, they don't. They wouldn't look Orthodox from uh, visually, but uh, they keep kosher. They keep Shabbat. They walk. They do all these things. At the Sephardic synagogue I went to, there were. There were regular Ashkenazi attenders, and uh, even you know when uh, you know when you're in the when you're in the place, you conduct yourself according to the to the customs of the place. So uh, Ashkenazi kohanim would uh, would give uh, berkat kohanim, even though Ashkenazi only do that on spe- during specific times. Uh, Sephardim do it every day. So uh, if there was an Ashkenazi kohen there, then he would do it. So I think people just uh, you know you you knew who was Ashkenazi and who was Sephardi. It didn't make a practical difference in terms of how service was conducted or how you prayed or if you could eat at their house or anything like that. We all got along. 
can I jump in here real quick? Of course. Uh, I thought something really beautiful I witnessed in Israel was that uh, during COVID, when people were no longer permitted to pray inside the Beit Knesset, the street down below the apartment became the Beit Knesset. And so everyone's coming together to Davin. And there are Ashkenazim and there are Sephardim. And, um, and there's all kinds of uh, chazanut going on. You can hear it from balconies. Uh, it was really beautiful. But one thing that people would do when they would make a minion is if it was an Ashkenazi who was saying Kaddish, um, for those who don't know, uh, Kaddish is a, a very famous prayer that's repeated multiple times during the service. Each time the service takes a kind of elevation or kind of breaks sh- up the sections, shifts gears. That the Kaddish, the prayer of Kaddish, is is different by by one or two lines in the beginning, just the basic. And what Ashkenazim would do is when they're reading Kaddish, they would pause just for a moment so that all the Sephardim could recite that line that's missing from that's talking about Mashiach, that's <laughs> missing from the Ashkenazi. Kaddish, and then they would carry on. And so it was Ashkenazim and Sephardim, uh, both with different prayer traditions, praying together. And um, that was not only a good model to see, but it was uh, just a remarkable thing to experience. Yeah, so it's really interesting because, you know, all of a sudden in the in the 18th century, in the mid, uh, the early to mid 1700s, you have kind of uh, almost a little bit of what's happening. I, I think it was a little bit of a precursor to the Ben Ishchai over in Iraq. You have in uh, Mezabich, Mezabich uh, Ukraine, you have a figure known as Israel Baal Shem Tov. And so he is the founder of the Hasidic movement. And so uh, now we have a completely different uh, kind of almost a reformation in Judaism. And so Shalom... I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about your experiences maybe in the Ashkenazi world and how, mm-hmm. how you know, there's almost like a little bit of a mixture mm-hmm. um, in terms of prayer style and, you know, some of the some of the practices in the Halachot, uh, especially with um, the Alta Rebbe who wrote the Shulchan Aruch Arav, like his own version of the Shulchan Aruch. The majority of the experience that I have um, with uh, with Judaism outside of a messianic context is with the Hasidic world, um, and like you said, the the Baal Shem Tov he borrowed heavily from um, Sephardic teachings regarding spirituality. He really, you know, saw that there's a lot that that the Ashkenazi world was really missing out on. Drew from it. His his whole goal was to to make Judaism something that uh, that meant something to just the average Jew. So the average like peasant farmer, Mm -hmm. you know, in in Ukraine. That they can have just as a profound uh, relationship with God as, as the, the Jew that's, you know, studying has, has the money to, to study, study the Shulchan Aruch or whatever they're studying um, all day long. But the, the guy that's out there, that's just farming, you know, he, he doesn't, have all of this knowledge. Sorry, so he doesn't access in terms of mm-hmm. time and money and maybe even not uh, in terms of knowledge of Hebrew and things also, right? So the Hasidic movement brought Judaism, this inspirational like relationship with God back to to the average Jew for, for the Ashkenazim. Um, and it really was inspired by the deep relationship with uh, with God and on a, on a spiritual level that uh, that the Sephardic world already had, and so he brought that into uh, the Ashkenazi world. The Baal Shem Tov really changed the the face of Judaism, like really com- 
like completely impacted the whole Jewish world, but certainly within the uh, the Ashkenazi world, being birthed from both the the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi world. Not to say that it didn't exist in either one separately. But uh, we see quite a few of those uh, rabbis who recognized that Yeshua was the Messiah. Oh, and interesting. So, wow. Yeah. Out of that world, they could they could make the connections, I think, better. Interesting. And there's also like an influence of mystical Judaism, which was mm -hmm. um, which the Sephardic world was more influenced by mystical Judaism. Can we use the term spiritual rather than mystical? Okay. Sure. Yeah, Mystic sure. Mystical is kind of hot, but it sounds, sounds weird in English. Okay. So, so in the Sephardic world, there was a, a spiritual tradition All right. that, uh, that those Ashkenazim were tapping into, um, which became Hasidus. And, and so you're, when you say spiritual, you're, you're meaning like, you know, the Kabbalah and the Zohar and, and, uh, all those, all the, that stream of Judaism and, and absolutely. Okay. Gotcha. And so that really comes through to the Hasidic movement, uh, you know, as Hasidus. And it's a, kind of a, a little bit more of an intro to Kabbalah and the Zohar and things like that. And also you have the impact in terms of prayer, right? And uh, so the, the even the, the Nusach or the style of, mm -hmm. of prayer, um, you know, it's brought in from the, the Sephardic style of prayer and the structure of the prayer is kind of brought into the Hasidic world, and then you you have the different sidurim that are authored by different Sephardic leaders, and it's more with the with the Sephardic structure and things like that. And what do we call that nusach? Nusach Sephard. Nusach Sephard. So these are Ashkenazim who um, are using something called nusach Spain, essentially. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, or Spaniard, or well, I don't know how they're understanding it, but um, yeah. So uh, it's a fascinating. Uh, situation yeah that's that's really interesting you know this brings us all into really kind of a, a little bit of debate almost you know among some of us here in the booth in terms of you know you have the backdrop of the hasidic world and you have so many of uh sheldon you you uh touched this touched into this that you have so many hasidic leaders that are recognizing yeshua as messiah because they're kind of more tapped into this this idea of of spirituality, as you say here, Ami. And uh, so then, you know, kind of like a more spiritual uh, understanding of Judaism. And so that's really kind of the, the it's underneath like the, the, the gospel of John, for instance, you have a very famous statement by, by Paul Philip Levertov, who said, you know, how do, how do Christians even understand the gospel of John without having a, a mystical or, you know, Zohar, Zoharic background? you know, to, to all of this. And so a lot of people would say is like, okay, from outside, from out of the Hasidic movement births, the Messianic movement, you know, we talked about some of the modern day aspects of the Messianic movement being really influenced from the reform, but you know, you really have kind of a, a birth, at least in, in the 1800s, uh, a little bit of a spiritual heritage in the Messianic movement coming from the Hasidic movement. And uh, I know that uh, might be a little controversial here, well, <laughs> but uh, go ahead. I want to, I want to play devil's advocate and agree with you. So, uh, on a, oh, that, that's, that's a turn <laughs> on a certain level, like we see really profound things happening in, in the Hasidic world, in Ukraine in Poland, um, we see Jews forming these kind of, um, where you have a Rebbe, um, and you have a team of, uh, 
who I'm, to borrow your accent, uh, who are who, you have a you have a team of the shlichim who are going out as emissaries on behalf of their rebbe and bringing his teachings uh, to the end of the world uh, with the intention of bringing Mashiach. I mean, literally, the Baal Shem Tov says that the ideas that he's presenting came to him from these a, a visit or maybe visits that he had with Mashiach. Wow. Um, Mashiach said that he. Uh, that his teaching would go forth like, like wellsprings, right. until the ends of the earth. Yeah, um, and, and then, yeah, it, and then the Messiah would come. And we yeah. have we have this from a letter that he wrote to his brother-in-law. He didn't have many writings, uh, kind of like Yeshua, but his students wrote down his teachings and the stories about him. And so we have this sort of like second example of this Rebbe with apostles, and he's teaching people to go off and pray alone, which is something very much uh, like Yeshua. So. So for the first time in in many centuries in the Jewish world, we have this kind of uh, this fresh picture of 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 a teacher and his disciples. Yeah, in the Talmudic tradition, you really have you know if you look at uh, tractates on Hedron, you know page ninety eight, ninety ninety nine, uh, ninety seven. Actually, spanning from ninety seven through ninety nine, uh, you have you have different different uh, different leaders. And you have people saying, oh, well, this is going to be the name of Messiah. The name of the Messiah is going to be according to my rabbi. And uh, it's almost like you have your own baseball team. <laughs> you know, you want the baseball team to win. And uh, and so you, you have this kind of uh, this picture of you have a, a rabbi, a rabbi, if you will. And he has students and they think that he's the Messiah. So that's kind of what, what you know, a little bit of the outgrowth, the return to that, to the Talmudic, that Talmudic tradition in the Hasidic world. But you mentioned on me that this was kind of the second phase or the second example of uh, the influence, uh, the Messianic world growing out of uh, different influences in Judaism. You want to talk about uh, the other side of things? Yeah, so um, now we said that uh, Hasidus is a combination of, it's an infusing of uh, Sephardic spirituality infused into the Ashkenazic structure. And that Sephardic or Spanish spirituality really was largely created during the high point of Jewish life in Spain before the Inquisition. And at that time, um, at, by the time of the Inquisition, we had, the numbers are, are almost unbelievable. We, there was something like 300,000 converts to Christianity. Oh my gosh, um, that's amazing. R- I've heard like 50,000, but... No, 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 300,000. I'll, I'll find you sources. Not only simple people, but also big rabbinic minds. There was all kinds of tension. It's debated about how this was happening, but the Inquisition was um, ultimately an inquiring of the church into the behavior of its own members. So these are people who have been baptized. So the Inquisition was focused on Jews who had been baptized um, by the church and were continuing to live as Jews. And so this, uh, this was a multi-generational thing. This is three, four generations deep. You have Spanish Jews who uh, have been baptized for whichever reason, and they're living as Christians while simultaneously uh, laying tefillin and eating matzah at Pesach. And, um, and this kind of, uh, and the Zohar is uh, published out of that world. It's oh, made it's made known out of that world, and then is given over to the Ashkenazim, and we have this flowering of Hasidus, which looks like this sort of, uh, you know, Ukrainian, Russian, Polish 
version of Jesus and the apostles on, on the Mount of Olives. It's, 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 uh, it's actually bizarre when you get down into the history. Okay, so let's ask the question. Here's the question. Was Yeshua a Sephardi? Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, he definitely was not Sephardic. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, he did go to Egypt once, so who knows what happened over there. Um, uh, but on the other hand, um, are, are Sephardim holding uh, more closely to uh, a halakhic position or to a tradition that is more similar to Yeshua? And I would have to argue yes. Okay. I mean, I, I have a little confession to make. You know, okay. whenever I would go to, I prayed in the Sephardic synagogues for a number of years, and whenever I go there, I'd be like, this is kind of probably how Yeshua prayed, <laughs> you know? Sure. It's almost like uh, there's a little bit of a, um, a reaching back into, you know, centuries old traditions and cultures and things like that, that are probably a little bit closer to what we see Temanim doing, the Yemenite community. And the, the Yemenite community is kind of what a lot of people argues a little bit of the most pristine uh it's, it's it's kind of like the most pristine uh carrier of tradition to today because they were so separated from the rest of the jewish world and uh, so you almost kind of like well how did people pronounce hebrew you know maybe a thousand or you know 1500 years ago or 2000 years beth ago emmanuel yeah they said beth right <laughs> you know and, and that kind of, but but i will say that uh there is a difference between patach and kamats and they pronounce a kamats like ashkenazim do so you know then there's that too <laughs> <laughs> so but uh you know all of this is really interesting in terms of when you know when i joked about you show being a sephardi obviously sephard sephard you know comes from spain and he was in israel and uh, but it, but it is interesting, you know, when you get to the Israeli culture, there's almost kind of a recapturing of Yeshua uh, back into the Israeli culture. It's just like you know now kind of make it very anachronistic, anachronistic, uh, uh, anachronistic statement. You know, you have people that are saying like, "Oh yeah, Yeshua's an Israeli," or that he's a Sabra, or he's a Sabra. Yeah, that's also. funny. Okay, it's interesting, well, and it's true on a certain level. Um, if you look at let's say his behavior during his his last supper. Okay. Um, this is largely accepted as some kind of, of, of Pesach Seder at that meal. It says that he took a cup of wine. He made a bracha. He drank that cup. They ate, ate a meal. There was presumably a cup during that meal as well. And after the meals as he likewise, he took the cup after the meal and he made a bracha. Okay. So if you look in an Ashkenazi, Haggadah for Pesach, you're going to see that you make a bracha on every cup of wine. But if you look in a Sephardic Haggadah for Pesach, you'll see that you make a bracha on the first cup and the cup after the meal. And uh, this is very significant. It's significant because um, I don't know who Ashkenazim are relying on when they make a bracha on every cup, but halakhically it doesn't make any sense. It should be part of the meal. Yeah, there's a lot, of, diff there's a lot of back and forth in terms of the different Talmuds we have, the you, the, the Jerusalem Talmud, Rishami, and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, they definitely have like different streams of tradition. But, you know, you mentioned a little bit uh, the the reform influence on the Messianic world. And, you know, let's talk about a little bit, you know. I'll just call that a win. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. You know, I, I, you know, I had a friend of mine. She was really funny. You know, she uh, had a lot of contact with, like, the large Jewish world uh, through – Israeli dance and uh, so she had you know this Israeli guy come up he's like you know I'm okay with with Jesus yeah he was he was a reform rabbi <laughs> you know that's right, kind of how he right. saw I you know, saw Yeshua and uh, 
in the whole mix. And did he wear a flat hat or a tall hat? Uh, oh, a yeah. tall hat, of course. Okay. Yeah. But uh, we'll not get into that. But anyways, uh, you know, so I want to hear from you gentlemen, you Sephardic gentlemen in the room, in, in the booth here. You know, what is it like to be in this community? Because in this community, there is a mix of Ashkenazi and Sephardi. And we pray in, in a Hasidic tradition where you have Nusach Sephard, which is a lot closer to Nusach Sephardi, the Sephardi style of prayer, whereas the Ashkenazi style of prayer is, is very, very different. But what is it like to be in this kind of mixed community, if you will? Mati, do you want to talk about Nets? <laughs> how do you, how do you handle Shabbat when when you're davening Nates, um, but the the minyan doesn't doesn't daven Nates? Right? Yeah, what, what what is Nates? Can you can you define that for us and and why on earth anybody would ever do that? Did Yeshua okay. daven so, Nates? So Nates is sunrise, and Yeshua obviously daven Nates. It says that he would rise early in the morning, and actually, uh, according to Halakha, Lachachila. Um, the ideal time to pray is to say Shema immediately before sunrise and then to pray the, the Amidah immediately after sunrise. Lachat Chila is, is the word for like optimal, right? Ideally. Right. I- right, ideally. So you're saying that we should all have sunrise services? Of course. Okay. Lachat Chila, that is the correct time to pray. So, so the service would have to be like 4.30 in the morning here? Right. Earliest Talit Tefillin is 4.05. Okay. Uh, right now. <laughs> uh, good luck. <laughs> And uh, so what I do on Shabbat is, is I pray by myself. I go, go until the, uh, the Amidav Shachrit, which is the first service on Shabbat. And then I'll study. I'll do a small kiddush myself. And then uh, I'll make my over to the synagogue. And so I can join the, the Kehillah for, uh, for Musaf. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so you, you kind of do your own prayers at the, the most optimal time. And then uh, while everybody's still sleeping and then when everybody's getting up, we can hardly get people here at nine o'clock in the morning. But, but uh, you know, when people, you know, we start our services, get to a certain point, and then you join with the services. Is that how it works? Yep. Okay, great. And, you know, so that's obviously something that anybody can tap into, not just uh, Sephardim. You know, there are Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Shabbat services where they're called like, you know, they pray Vatikin, you know, they pray like as, as early as possible. I used to go to one of those uh, when I lived in LA, but um, it works for you. And then, uh, funny enough, you're you're married to somebody who's Ashkenazi, right? I am. Yeah. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, she's so, not Ashkenazi anymore. She's okay, <laughs> okay, she's one of you guys now, right? So, okay, so but how does that work? One for the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, she uh, she adopted uh, my customs when she married me. Okay, wh- why is that? Was that just something you guys worked out, or uh, we talked about it a little bit? But that's tip- that's typically standard. Uh, that's typical for most people that they'll uh, that uh, there's going to be one custom in the household. I mean, we'll do um, like for Rosh Hashanah or um, or even for the Pesach Seder. You know, there's, there's a couple of things that she'll do. Um, you know, that she is, has a tradition in her family to do. It's not a problem to add those things into into what into what I'm what I'm doing. Okay, interesting, really cool. And so, let me hear from you, Ami. Uh, you know, by the way, we have one of the community members that uh, is joking that all the bar mitzvot, all the b'nai mitzvot, they're coming up. Uh, they're all going to be, they're they're all going to be sfardim. So now you guys are going to outnumber us pretty soon, right? Oh, thank God. <laughs> uh, so, no. but uh, but what's your experience been like in this community? You're fairly new to this community. Well, Ashkenazim have better PR people, and they've done a better job at publishing books and uh, creating uh, yeshivot, and and um, maybe we're 
or quicker on the draw to get online. So uh, the emphasis at, at Beth Emanuel has always been Ashkenazi, but as more um, Sephardim have come in, you know, we talk about eventually, you know, having a, a Sephardic Torah. And um, you oh, know, what's what's a Sephardic Torah? Uh, so what that what, what is that? Okay, so look, so there's an entire debate. Everyone knows that a mezuzah goes on the doorpost uh, in a slanted sort of 45 degree angle, right? Yeah, I've always wondered about that. What is, what okay, is that? well, I mean, um, not if you're Sephardic. It goes vertically. Okay. And this discussion about the mezuzah and the Torah are really the same thing because the Sephardic Torah has a teak, has a case that goes around it that has a, a flat bottom so that the Torah can sit on um, a flat table and be read in a vertical position. Whereas Ashkenazim uh, lay the Torah down on the table um, and this is also the same argument. I don't know who, I forget who the the, the two individuals were. There was a disagreement in the uh, Ashkenazi world about whether to uh, lay the, the mezuzah down horizontally and to put it, affix it on the doorpost horizontally, which would be proper Ashkenazi behavior if you look at the way the Torah is laid down on on the bima when it's being read. And then other there were other opinions that said, no, it should go vertically like Sephardim do. And so Ashkenazim said, okay, let's stick it at an angle. Now, I mean, the problem with that, obviously, is that was nobody's opinion to stick it at an angle. There was one opinion that said vertically, another opinion that said horizontally, but people decided to stick it at an angle. So, is that kind of like uh, you're right and you're also right? Yeah, I, I guess. And, and so uh, it, today for Ashkenazim, it's at an angle. And everyone um, in the United States believes that that's sort of universal, um, but it's not. And so there's an issue of, this, of the Torah, whether it's being read vertically the issue of the mezuzah. Also, I think in reality, um, I think it might be appropriate for Ashkenazim to actually store the Sifrei Torah in, in the ark um, lying down. I think there's one synagogue someplace where they actually do this. They have a large um, Aron where they uh, stack the Torahs uh, lying down. Yeah, the the Grand the grand uh, Bells Synagogue, Hasidic, uh, one of the Hasidic groups um, in, in uh, Israel, they're the only ones, I think, in the world, maybe, but maybe there's others that actually have a Aaron Kodesh, a, an ark, where they lay the Sifri Torah okay. um, horizontally. They lay them down instead of standing up. Okay, interesting. Now, um, at the depth of this discussion, it's not just legal, but there's some kind of sp- spiritual ramifications of this, whether or not oh, the Torah is standing vertically or whether or not it's lying down. Um, also, the, it's the same situation where sometimes when we're davening, we're standing when you're sitting. And at other times, uh, usually, you're standing while we're still sitting. That is a, uh, a silent sort of conversation about um, whether or not we're dealing with uh, the Shekhinah down oh. here in this world or whether or not we're dealing with the masculine aspect um, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which is, which is uh, something that's lofty beyond this world. Okay, well, there you go. There's the, uh, the whole slipping in the... the the whole spiritual quote unquote. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's how it works. That's um, so the, the Sephardic leaning is towards um, is, is kind of more informed. Like even though Halakha says that your tzitzit should go outside of your, outside of your clothes, which makes perfect sense. If you read the text, I'm going to admit that legally speaking, it makes so much sense. We're supposed to look uh-huh. at our tzitzit and we're supposed to see them. And I believe even Shulchan Aruch says to wear your tzitzit out. But Kabbalistically, you should tuck your tzitzit into your clothes. 
um, because there are demonic forces that hang on to uh, tastily like things like ladies' hair and uh, and seat seat and maybe even your peyote that should go behind your ears so that you can sort of tuck up these things and not have this pride leech on leech on to those uh, those those beautiful tassels. Yeah, I heard a rabbi say one time when he looks at the uh, Hasidim who have the side locks, the peyote, and you know they're in front of their ears. He's like, eh, okay, kind of discounts it, you know, having long payouts and things. But then when he looks at Yemenite payouts, he's like, uh-oh, okay, maybe I should have those too. <laughs> well, maybe get to pay us talk in another episode. But it, uh, okay, anyway, so, I mean, I think it's really beautiful how you have the merging of the two traditions in the synagogue. And that's not something that you have in a lot of Messianic synagogues because they typically follow, as you as you were commenting earlier, the reform style of um of judaism but then they'll have like sephardic pronunciation or i, I don't want to say mm. sephardic maybe mm -hmm. um israeli yeah. pronunciation for the hebrew and things like that the beauty of having both traditions represented in uh, beth emmanuel uh is really just the idea of okay we we have something that's shared we have shared experiences we have uh, a shared allegiance and um we have a shared allegiance to to our Messiah, to to Yeshua, who you're saying is a Sephardi, but okay. Uh, besides that, and, and you know, we have a shared allegiance to Yeshua, and also we have kind of on the flip side a shared experience of getting kicked out of communities and things like that. Mm -hmm. At Beth Emmanuel, we have um, not only have we all been, or many of us, been brought here by God's hand, or we've come because we're very hungry, searching for something, but this is a place where anyone can come of any stripe regarding observance. You know, we have a parking lot and people park in the parking lot and nobody's watching to see who's parking in the parking lot. And Meaning who's driving on Shabbat yeah, and holidays. Yeah, we're, we, um, we, everybody is, is uh, concerned about their own observance and maintaining their own practice. And we, uh, our group of people try to be strict with ourselves and lenient with the people around us. And uh, I think that's... Uh, One thing that really impacted me in my own with Chabad is... I, I learned the power of positive speaking mm. there. I just, it compute, I computed in my own head. I'm like this, we're kind of out a little bit in the middle of nowhere. This isn't a extremely Jewish community. So I, but anyway, I asked the rabbi, I said, are people, do people drive here on Shabbat? And he said, well, some people don't walk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we need to focus on ourselves, our own observance, and not so much on where other people are at in their journey. Wh one thing that's amazing about Beth Emanuel is that we have we have some people who have a little bit more uh, a little bit more money than uh, than some of us do, and they they go ahead and they buy properties and they rent them out to people in the community, which is amazing that that. I right, you know, or some some people in our community probably couldn't afford to live here otherwise. Um, but we now have the ability to walk here on Shabbat rather than drive in here from further away. Uh, you know, going back to the idea of uh, this community supporting both Ashkenazic and Sephardic traditions, you know, it's really interesting because I mean, obviously there was there was a largely Gentile presence before the the Jewish population here grew and. They were mostly following the Ashkenazic, uh, the Ashkenazic representation that we have in America, and then they switched over to more of a Hasidic style, 
in terms of prayer and things like that, being heavily influenced from the Chabad world. You mentioned that a number of times, mm-hmm. Shalom. And but then you know we said, okay, well we'll make a place for all of our Sephardic families who are coming into here. And and I mean that's just uh, something I think that's a really beautiful thing that you don't have a lot in in other synagogues. I mentioned that a lot of synagogues are just very segregated, you know, on an average average Shabbat. Even though you go to synagogues and you'll have, you know, Ashkenazim and Sephardic synagogues and Sephardim and Ashkenazic synagogues, you know, invariably. But it's really kind of because of our numbers sometimes. You know, we don't have the hmm. ability necessarily to have Ashkenazi and Sephardi Messianic synagogues. I mean, we, we just don't have the numbers for that. Yeah, for, and that, and that, for forces, that forces us into unity. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, Beautiful. Well, I want to say chazak uh, baruch to mm-hmm. all of my uh, my Sephardic people here in the in the booth. and then yashkoyich uh, to all the Ashkenazim here. So, ha- thank you so much for joining us, and have a great day in every way.